social determinants of health into professional teams, improving healthcare delivery to patients and families. These are the themes of our Urban Service Talks, a podcast featuring the stories of students from a variety of healthcare professions, learning together to serve patients in our underserved community. We are a group of curious Urban Service Track AX scholars. Sharing insight to educate and spark change wherever our stories are told. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Urban Service Talks, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of healthcare and the needs of our community through an interprofessional lens. As a reminder, these talks represent a discussion of ideas and issues which do not represent the views of Urban Service Track or Connecticut Area Health Education Center Network or any other affiliated organization. My name is Claire, and I'm a first-year medical student at UConn. I'm Quinn, and I'm a fourth-year nursing student at UConn. I'm Asia, and I'm a second-year dental student at UConn. We are thrilled to be hosting our first episode in a mini-series that we will be doing on the impacts of the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Today, we are going to be discussing what abortion is and what abortion access looks like in Connecticut, specifically in light of recent legal changes, including the overturn of Roe versus Wade. We will be doing that with the help of our lovely guest, Amina Carter. Amina is a physician assistant and lead clinician at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. Amina has been a fierce and consistent advocate for abortion seekers in Connecticut, specifically for our local community in Hartford and West Hartford. I'd love to give a huge welcome and thank you to Amina. We are so happy to have you here. It's really a pleasure to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. And I'm so excited that people are wanting to talk about abortion and say the word abortion. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing awareness to this amazing topic to speak about. I'm a lead clinician at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, like Claire said. I've been at Planned Parenthood for about seven years. As a lead clinician, I provide direct patient care, but I also onboard and train new providers. Um, And I serve as a liaison between our providers and our staff and our clinical services team and our executive leadership team. So those are like the decision makers in the organization. So we serve as the voice of the healthcare staff. I've been there for seven years. Um, and what really brought me to Planned Parenthood is my passion for reproductive justice. When I was in school, I knew I wanted to work in community health. Um, I had such a strong interest in women's health. And so I knew that I wanted to work for a healthcare organization that focused on health equity, education, and reproductive justice. And so it's really been an honor to work for Planned Parenthood. I feel like it was my dream job and I'm never, ever leaving. So I'm so thrilled to still continue to represent Planned Parenthood. Hi, Amina. Uh, we're so excited to have you here for our first episode. You talked about some of our first few questions about your role at Planned Parenthood, as well as how long you've been working, as well as what drove you to seek work and continue to work in abortion care. We want to move on to talking about abortion. And for those who do not know, can you tell us what an abortion is and the different types of abortions one can access, such as medication versus procedures? The term abortion actually refers to a pregnancy that ends before reaching viability. And so that includes spontaneous abortion, which is miscarriage. But an induced abortion is what we're talking about here. So it's a it's an abortion that's induced. And there's two different kinds. So there's the medication abortion. Some people call that the pill abortion. And it uses two different medications to stop a pregnancy from growing and then stimulate your body to pass the products of conception or sort of miscarry that pregnancy. So it's two medications. You take one one of those medications in the office and then one is taken at home. It's a nice option for folks who really want to have this procedure at home. 
It's a great way to improve access to abortion because it does not involve, in a lot of cases, spending the day at a clinic and it doesn't involve getting anesthesia. So it's a really nice option for people who are eligible. You can induce an abortion with the pills up to 77 days or 11 weeks. So it's a nice way for people who are early in their pregnancy to terminate a pregnancy. The other type of induced abortion is a procedural abortion. This has historically been called a surgical abortion, and we're really trying to get away from using that term because it's not surgery. That's sort of a misnomer to call it a surgical abortion. It's not surgery at all. It's a procedure that's done in the office. It's an outpatient procedure, and it is actually the most common type of abortion that you can have. So it uses gentle suction to empty the uterus. So it's a pretty safe and um, straightforward procedure. You can terminate a pregnancy this way, depending on where you're located and who your provider is. You can terminate a pregnancy this way up to about 23 weeks and six days. Again, it's depending on where you are and what provider um, you go to. Most people terminate their pregnancies, though, earlier than 13 weeks. Again, super early in pregnancy and very, very safe. An important thing to note when talking about induced abortion is that these procedures, especially the pill abortion, it's different from contraception. So it's intended to be used after someone conceives. It's not like a birth control pill that you take to prevent pregnancy. It's a procedure that you do after you've become pregnant. Some people confuse the abortion pill with the morning after pill, but those two things are very different. And it's really important to know that the medication abortion or the pill abortion is intended for after you become pregnant and the emergency contraception pill is intended to prevent pregnancy. Awesome. Thank you for all of that information. I'm glad that you distinguished between both medication and procedural abortion, but also addressing some of those misconceptions that people might have. And also the vernacular surrounding procedural abortion, I think that's an important note to touch on. And you did touch on this a little bit, but how late is it or how late can somebody um, get an abortion? There's no sort of like too soon time frame to get an abortion. Most people realize they're pregnant. Those two things are very different. And it's really important to know that thinking about after that first missed period. So most people realize they're pregnant pretty early on. And again, they usually induce an abortion at 13 weeks or earlier. That's about 90% of the abortions that we see. But Connecticut state laws says that abortion is legal until viability, which is the point where a pregnancy um, is developed enough so that it can survive outside of the uterus. And that's typically around 24 to 26 weeks of pregnancy, depending on certainly tons of different factors, maternal health, things like that. Abortion is legal in the state of Connecticut up to 23 weeks and six days. So just before that 24-week viability time point. Great. That was super clear. Thanks for answering that question. Another question we had for you is what you think the major misconceptions are about abortion care. There are a lot of them, as I'm sure you guys know. But I think what's really important is to focus on a lot of the factual information around abortion. And so the big things that we always want to talk about is that abortion is one of the safest medical procedures you can have. It's got a 99% safety record, and it's safer than giving birth. It's safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. So that's a big thing that people often misunderstand, that because it's a procedure, because we are ending a pregnancy, it's dangerous, it's somehow risking the mother's life, when in fact, we know that abortion is incredibly safe. It's one of the safest procedures. The other thing that's really important, I think, for folks to know is that there's absolutely no proven link between having an abortion and having infertility later on. There's no link at all. Having a termination, whether that's the pill abortion or the procedural abortion, 
neither of those things result in infertility or trouble getting pregnant later on. So that's really important too. And then of course, like I mentioned before, most of abortions are done early on in pregnancy. There's this idea that Planned Parenthood is providing these quote late-term abortions. That term is completely made up. That's not something that exists. Pregnancy has reached term when it's 37 weeks. Late abortion, meaning that an abortion later on in pregnancy, is just not a thing that's common at all. In some cases, done to prevent maternal death. Certainly, that's one case where you might see that, but it's late-term abortion is not a term that we use. It's it's a made-up term, and most abortion is done very early in pregnancy, 13 weeks or earlier. One other thing that I think a lot of people misunderstand or think about when they think of abortion is that people regret it. People think, oh, everybody I know that had an abortion regrets it. What we know based on study after study after study is that relief is actually the most common emotion felt after an abortion, right after the abortion and years later. And so that's really important. Most people who seek termination are doing so because they need to have it for whatever reason, and they are relieved to be able to access that service. I just wanted to say that I really liked how you emphasized that it is the safest procedure and that there's no link between abortion and infertility. That's definitely some misconceptions that I have heard from others in my life. And I really like that you pointed that out. So important for folks to know that it is so safe and in a lot of cases, much safer than carrying that pregnancy to term. I just wanted to go back to something you had mentioned previously. You had mentioned that among the earlier dates that somebody might get an abortion was around six weeks, as that's when they might learn that they are pregnant. I was wondering if you could talk about the implications of some of these laws that have limitations on abortion at certain earlier gestations, and just sort of expand on that a little bit. What you're referring to are these so-called heartbeat bills that are in place in some states. And what that refers to is a ban on abortion after you can detect cardiac activity on an ultrasound. That typically happens around six weeks. So you can imagine if someone does not know they're pregnant until after their missed period, that's a very, very narrow window to make your decision, seek out abortion care, and then have the abortion before it's illegal in that state. So that can have really profound consequences on folks. If you're not tracking your period, if you have irregular periods, or if you don't get periods every single month, you may not know you're pregnant until well after that six-week time point. And if you're living in a state that has one of these heartbeat bills in place, it is not legal to get an abortion and you may need to travel out of state or you may not be able to get an abortion at all. So it can really have profound consequences on people who are pregnant. It's just unbelievable that would even be a situation one would be in. It's such a narrow window for a lot of people. I think it's really important that you emphasize that some people don't even know they're pregnant yet. Some people have irregular periods. So the normal way of discovering that one might be pregnant, they might not even have that. In addition to that, being that abortion is very inaccessible in this country at this point in time, even if somebody does find out, can you talk about the limits in access to care? If somebody has to travel out of state to get an appointment, what does that situation look like? There are a lot of barriers for folks to access abortion, even if abortion is legal in your state. 
So just because abortion is legal does not mean it is accessible. And so when you start having to overcome transportation and travel barriers, financial barriers, folks don't always have the funds to fly to another state. Once they get to that state, where are they going to stay? How are they going to get to their appointment? Sometimes the closest state or the closest clinic where they can get an abortion has restrictions in place that makes it even more challenging. They have a wait period, or maybe there are no appointments anytime soon. We have a national shortage of OBGYN providers, specifically providers that provide family planning or abortion care. So there's so many barriers to care already in place. When you start having to travel across state lines, it can be incredibly difficult for folks to access this care. And then on top of that, with the laws that are in place in a lot of places, there's a lot of fear. There's fear of being prosecuted. There's fears of, am I not going to be able to have health insurance if my insurance company finds out? Will I get fired from my job? There's a lot of fear there. And that fear leads to unnecessary delays in care. And we know that that leads to poor outcomes. And then on top of that, if you are needing to travel, if you do have the resources to get to a place, you may have a child already that needs childcare. You may have a job that you need to figure out how to get time off of work. You know, there's all of those other life things going on for folks. Even if you can get it logistically, are you going to take off work? Are you going to be able to find childcare? Yeah, that was super insightful. I think it was so important how you mentioned that There are barriers to accessing abortion within states where it's legal. There's just so much to consider in that. We had one more question for you about abortion more generally. If you could talk about some of the less talked about circumstances in which people access abortion care. So we know that's actually pretty common and that one in four people who get pregnant will get an abortion in their lifetime. The reason that someone wants or needs an abortion should never impact their ability to get an abortion. And I think what we often hear about in the news are these life or death scenarios. There's a problem with the pregnancy. The woman needs care. They're not able to get it. That's still pretty common and that's important to highlight. But what we don't talk about in the media, what we don't typically talk about day to day when we talk about abortion are the many, many reasons that someone may want or need an abortion. Contraception failure, that's a big one, right? You're doing all the right things. You have an IUD or you have birth control pills that you take and it fails. Another important thing to highlight is the case of abuse, intimate partner violence is so pervasive and so important to consider when we're talking about abortion because often intimate partners who are abusive will use pregnancy as a way to trap their partner. They'll withhold birth control. It's a way to exert control over that partner. So that's really important. There's a lot of different reasons that someone may need an abortion. The most important reason is that they want an abortion. So that's so important. I think that people fail to recognize that this decision is so personal and it's not anyone's business. Why? The why is that person's choice. What's important is that people have access to this service, just like someone may need access to a root canal or access to a cardiac ablation. They should have access to abortion for whatever reason they need it for. Thank you so much for that. I really like how you like highlighted that it is you know, the most important thing is that it's personal and that there are many reasons that someone might get an abortion and that it is not the most important thing that we even know those reasons. It's that they want an abortion and that they need to access one. I still also appreciate you painting the picture of all the different circumstances that somebody might get an abortion. I think that's really important for people to understand. 
transitioning a little bit more into the actual overturn um, of Roe and in the sort of legal space surrounding abortion care right now, I just wanted to dive into that a little bit. Obviously, this decision has huge implications, and we are wondering if you could explain to us what the overturn of Roe means to you as an individual and also how it is going to impact your practice as a clinician. So the overturn of Roe versus Wade was incredibly disheartening for me as just an individual person, as a woman, and more specifically as a mother. I think about the future that we are creating for our next generations, and it feels pretty dim um, when we talk about overturning Roe versus Wade. We are reducing someone's access to reproductive health care, and that is nationwide. Regardless of what state you live in, These uh, this decision impacts every single state. It impacts every single person in every single state. It's really important that we continue to talk about this, even though it's been many months since Roe versus Wade was overturned. We need to keep this relevant because we need to continue to fight for reproductive health care access for our future generations, for sure. As an abortion provider, it's so critical that we <laughs> have access to abortion. That's just such an important piece of healthcare in general. I've mentioned it before. Carrying a pregnancy to term is incredibly dangerous for a lot of people. We have such high maternal mortality rates in the United States compared to our other developed nations. So we're in this situation where we're putting people's lives in danger. We're putting people who are able to become pregnant at risk by limiting access to abortion and reducing access to reproductive health care overall. We have seen a lot of patients from other states coming into the state of Connecticut to access services. Around 6% of our abortion patients right now are from out of state. So we're already seeing patients coming from far and wide to access care in Connecticut. So we're seeing the effects already. We saw it pretty early on after Roe versus Wade was overturned. And I think we'll continue to see that number climb as other states pass similar legislation to limit and reduce abortion access. I think it's so important that you pointed out that pregnancy is not an inherently safe thing to go through and that forcing people to take that route is not safe and that it's very important to keep that in mind when considering abortion bans and the implications that they have. I think it's amazing that Connecticut is sort of a safe haven for this type of care. On that sort of same vein, I was wondering if you could talk about the recent law that was passed in Connecticut. I think it's referred to as Public Act 22. It was passed in May of 2022, and it aims to protect providers and patients seeking abortion care by increasing the number of providers who can deliver this care. Can you talk about the implications of this law and how it does or will be impacting your practice? That law that was passed in May um, is the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act. It's such an important law, and it's one of the many reasons I'm proud to be a provider in the state of Connecticut. It does two things. So it allows for advanced practice clinicians, so that refers to nurse midwives, APRNs, and physician assistants, to be trained and to perform aspiration abortion, which is that suction procedure, the procedural abortion I was talking about earlier. And so what that does is it expands access for our residents here in Connecticut to access abortion. But what it also does is it allows for improved access to abortion care for our non-Connecticut residents. So it really expands access. It makes Connecticut pretty unique in that we can serve a lot more people. Since there is a shortage of OBGYN family planning providers, I think it's important to highlight this because this is going to be the future of abortion care. We're going to need more more providers entering the field 
field of family planning. And since we don't have a lot of MDs or we don't have enough MDs to meet the demand, we are now able to train advanced practice providers like myself to provide this important service. And since the in-clinic abortion procedure or the suction procedure is the most common method by which someone terminates a pregnancy, right, we're now even more able to meet the demand of our patients, which is great. And for me, it's going to be exciting to be able to be a part of that, to be a part of the next wave of providers to be on the forefront of this, this type of care. I think that's so awesome that the access is being expanded. I remember talking to a provider who's from Kansas, and I think they said that there's less than five providers total in the state of Kansas. And you know, that's for many reasons, but I think it's so awesome to highlight how much Connecticut is doing to expand access. Another thing I wanted to touch on and raise up is as a part of UST, we really emphasize interprofessional teams. One thing I love about being a part of this program is I get to learn from my colleagues in different professions, dental, nursing, and the fact that this law is allowing providers who are all very capable to become providers of all kinds of abortion care. I I think that's really wonderful. And it really hits home in terms of some of the values that we definitely love to see here at UST. So yeah, that's really amazing to hear that uh, the law is going to expand access in that way and that Connecticut is going to become even more of a place where people can access reproductive care in the way that they need. So going off of what Claire said, within UST, we really value working together as an interprofessional team. So when talking about abortions in Connecticut, you talked about who provides abortions, but can you also talk about what an interprofessional team looks like for abortion care? As far as who is involved in abortion care, we have a lot of different key members of the team. So at Planned Parenthood, we have our clinic assistants, which are our medical assistants, but they do so much more than your your typical medical assistant. They are critical to the counseling piece of an abortion. They do so much for our patients. Of course, we have our APCs like me. Um, We have our family planning docs. But we have a lot of other people who are working really hard behind the scenes to ensure that our patients are well taken care of, making sure that they have access to care. So we have folks like our abortion care navigator, which is a relatively new role at Planned Parenthood. And what she does is she connects patients to funding. She connects patients to pools of money that they can access to help pay for their abortion. When we think of paying for the abortion, we think of self-pay patients, but we have a lot of patients whose insurance plans may not cover it all the way, or they may have a high deductible. And so she will ensure that someone has the ability to pay for their abortion. She makes sure that folks can get access to appointments when they need it, things like that. And we also have a lot of really cool people that come and help with our care such as our abortion doulas. I love our doulas because they are there to help support the patient from start to finish. They do such an amazing job of making people feel comfortable and they really just serve as such an amazing support system for that patient day of. Especially during COVID, you know, we know that limiting the number of people we can have in that clinic space for the safety of our staff and our other patients, to be able to have someone whose sole focus is to just make that patient feel comfortable. It's just a really amazing service that we can provide for our patients. So it takes a lot of people to keep the system going, but everyone plays a really critical part. We couldn't do it without each other. I love how you mentioned the funding aspect of accessing abortion care as paying for health services is such a huge deal within America since we don't have free health care and such. Are there any services for the psychosocial aspect, as I'm assuming that going through the abortion process can be very stressful on the patients? 
We try to connect folks um, with other services to make sure that they're getting all of the care that they need from start to finish, right? We think about the visit as sort of being when they are in the clinic, but there's a lot of healing that happens after that visit, both physically, emotionally, mentally. And so we do try to connect people with resources to help with that emotional coping. We use a um, resource called Exhale or Backline. And they serve as sort of a round-the-clock, 24-7 counseling service for patients who are having an abortion, who are seeking abortion, who have already had it, and also partners. I think it's important to include the partners in that because having an abortion can impact one's relationship. It can impact the person who's having the procedure as well as other people in their life. So um, that's a really wonderful resource that we're able to connect our patients with. That's amazing. I love that you were mentioning those resources. I also wanted to take this opportunity to ask you what role people who aren't accessing abortion have in this herd. We often talk about abortion as an issue that affects women or pregnant persons. You mentioned the resources being available to partners. I was wondering what words of wisdom or what you can say about how abortion maybe impacts the community as a whole and what other people can do or should be thinking about if they want to support people's access to reproductive health care as a whole. So that's an excellent question. If you yourself are not seeking an abortion, but you support abortion access, I think that's rad. I think that's amazing. A couple of things you can do, speak out, speak up, get involved. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can do so. Social media has a lot of great places and, and accounts that you can follow to get involved in advocacy and public policy. Quick plug for PP Votes Connecticut. It's our advocacy branch of our organization. So follow at PP Votes CT on social media. They are always putting out ways to get involved in advocacy and public policy, which is, of course, just as important as the healthcare that we provide in our clinics. And then another really, I don't want to say easy because for some it's not easy, but another great way to support abortion access is to donate. I mentioned our um, abortion care navigator who connects people to funding. That funding needs to be replenished. Um, we want to keep those funds up so that we can meet the needs of our patients. Again, as we see an influx of folks coming from out of state, we want to make sure everyone has access to care. We do not want costs to be the rate limiting step for someone to get the care that they need. One amazing abortion fund in the state of Connecticut is called REACH, R-E-A-C-H. They provide financial assistance for abortion care in Connecticut, and they work directly with the clinic. So you know where your donation is going. You know that it's going directly to the patients who need care. And again, it's not just patients who are paying out of pocket. It's patients who have really high deductible plans. It's patients who have insurance, but their insurance carrier has chosen not to cover abortion. Um, there's a lot of reasons that an abortion may be too costly for someone. So it's so important that we continue to donate to the REACH Fund in Connecticut. And you can learn a lot more about them at reachfundct.org. It's a great place to start if you want to get involved, but don't know how, make a donation. That's so awesome to hear. And some exciting stuff. We're actually going to be interviewing a representative from the REACH Fund for our fourth episode in this series. So I love that you touched on that. So that's amazing. And I just wanted to pass the baton over to Quinn for some uh, last questions on access in Connecticut. So some other questions we have about accessing abortions in Connecticut is, can you talk about how Connecticut falls on the scale of abortion access and what does it look like right now? 
So Connecticut is a safe haven state. Our laws are, are really in favor of abortion access, but I mentioned this before. It's so important to know that just because abortion is legal doesn't mean that it's always accessible. So even in Connecticut, even in the safe haven state, we have a lot of barriers to care. There's rising costs of healthcare. There's accessibility issues. And so touching on limited provider availability, limited appointments. There's also systemic barriers, racism, misogyny, abortion, shame, a lot of things that get in the way of someone being able to access care. The state of Connecticut is not immune to those issues. And so that's really important. We are working hard to break down those barriers, but in Connecticut, we still have those same access issues. That being said, we are doing our best to improve access. We talked about the law that was just passed in May. We talked about APCs being able to provide in-clinic abortion, but we're still looking at around a two-week wait for in-clinic abortion appointments. And again, as demand rises, we need to be able to meet that demand with more provider access. So we're certainly not immune to all of those access issues. And we're hoping that the laws in Connecticut will continue to change to improve our access and protect our providers. Yes, it is so important to understand that getting an abortion is not as simple as it sounds since there's just so many barriers to getting it. That's not just the laws itself. In terms of location-wise, we know that Planned Parenthood is a great resource for abortion, but is it the only place that people can access abortion in Connecticut? Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of abortion services in Connecticut. We have 14 offices in Connecticut. We actually have one office in Rhode Island as well. But other than Planned Parenthood, the only other clinic that is an abortion clinic in Connecticut is Hartford GYN, which is here in the greater Hartford area. But that being said, that leaves a lot of places in the state where there is no abortion provider or an abortion provider is involving travel. So still important. While we are the biggest provider, there's still a lot of gaps with just one other clinic in the state. It lends to that access issue that I mentioned before. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight that even though we are a safe haven state, there is still limits to access. It's so good that there's so many locations for Planned Parenthood, but the fact that there's just one other dedicated abortion clinic in Connecticut is, is kind of surprising. But I think that just builds on the idea that we've been talking about, that even though it is legal, there are still lots of barriers. And I just wanted to pass the baton over to Isha to ask a few questions closing up the podcast. As we're approaching the end of the podcast, can you talk a little bit more about how abortion access in Connecticut will look in the coming future? As we look into the future, we are hoping to continue to train more APPs to provide that in-clinic abortion or the suction procedure to improve access. Um, we're going to see continued influx of patients from other states seeking abortion care. So it's really important for us to continue to train our providers our non-medical degree providers, our non-MD providers like nurse midwives, PAs, and NPs to provide that service. The other thing that we're looking to start doing at some point in the future, if the laws um, allow for it, is start to offer telehealth abortion. So offering that pill abortion through telehealth services, I think that's going to really help to improve access for folks. So we're just looking to try and meet the needs of our patients and our community in whatever way that we can. Great. Thank you so much for that. I'm not sure if you touched on this before. If you could just touch upon what an APP is. So an APP, an advanced practice provider, um, we also call them APCs, advanced practice clinicians. Um, it refers to those non-MDDO um, providers, so non-doctor providers. 
So nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and nurse midwives. And so we have extensive training, um, we have specialized training, and we are highly qualified to perform in-office procedures. And so thinking about the law that was just passed in Connecticut, um, this law used to use language that excluded APPs from providing in-clinic abortion because it specifically referenced doctors. The language of the law was changed to expand that to include other providers. So advanced practice providers like nurse midwives, PAs, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. And we have one last question for you. How do you stay hopeful amid all of the restrictive laws surrounding reproductive justice? I think what keeps me going is just knowing that the patients are there and they need me and they need my colleagues and they need folks like you who are willing to speak out in support of abortion access. I just think about those folks who are in other states who don't have the same type of support and access or don't have the same social support. In a lot of places, saying the word abortion is incredibly taboo and can land someone in a really tricky situation just by saying the word. So I think about those folks. I think about all of the patients that will continue to need our care well into the future. I think about our future generations and how abortion helps to improve health outcomes in general and how we need to continue this fight to ensure that they have the potential for a healthy future. That's so awesome and so important. I love that you're talking about having the patients inspire you and and bring you back to it. I think that's really beautiful and really inspiring. I just wanted to give you one final thank you for being on this podcast. You have been so insightful and highlighted so many important issues surrounding this subject. We just want to thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your insight on this issue. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you all so much for having me. It's such a pleasure always to speak about my favorite topic, abortion. Um, And I encourage you to keep saying the word, keep doing what you're doing to draw attention to this important cause. It's so great to see our future providers really taking such a proactive approach to get involved. So thank you all. Awesome. Thank you so much. This podcast is sponsored by Connecticut AHEC and UConn Health. Let's keep this talk going. Join us on Twitter at Talks Service, Instagram at Urban Service Talks, or by email at ust.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>